Good morning again. Wow, that was really just something coming back. Good morning to you. There we go. All right, we're good. Um, if you have your Bible, you can open up to Mark 13. What a chapter. Uh, we're going to take it in two parts. I am going to uh, read for you probably a little bit longer of a passage than, than we're, we're normally accustomed to reading. So uh, you're going to have to be extra diligent to hang with me. I know that the tendency for our minds to sort of just drift as we go. So, so listen carefully uh, as I read. We're going to read Mark 13, starting in verse 1 and going on through verse 23. So listen as I read. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved." But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise And perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard, I have told you all things beforehand. You ready for this one? All right, let me me pray for us, and then we will uh, dig in together. Our Father, we we need wisdom, we need help. Uh, We need your spirit to guide us into all truth. Lord, we thank you that you promised to be with us. Uh, and that you promise to help us understand your word. Uh, we know if there are any things in this passage, which, which surely even just at a cursory reading we can see that are perplexing, it's not because there is any insufficiency in your word. 
uh, but insufficiency in our own understanding, in our own minds, in our own dullness. So we pray that you would help us to think clearly about these words. And in all of it, would you show us Jesus Christ? Would you show us uh, a sight of our Savior who loves us and has done everything that is necessary to reconcile us to you, forgiving our sin and preserving us and keeping us for the day of glory when we will be with you perfectly forever. Lord, encourage your people, nourish your people now, strengthen them in their faith, and be with us as we hear your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me move this out of the way real quick. Get at my face. All right, so this morning we come to one of the most famous passages of Scripture in the Bible. As you know, we're working through Mark's Gospel. We come here to Mark 13, uh, where Mark records the Olivet Discourse. Its notoriety is largely due to how much debate has surrounded how this passage should be interpreted. And, and you, you can probably already tell it's filled with a number of perplexing verses that provoke all different kinds of, of questions. Is Jesus talking ab- about events that, that took place in the first century, or is he talking about future events that have yet to happen? What exactly does Jesus mean when he says the, ger- the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations? What's with that little parenthetical statement, let the reader understand? Why does he slip that in there? Can God's elect finally be led, of sh- led astray? And, and finally, of course, uh, what in the world is, or who in the world is the abomination of desolation? You, of course, can understand why so many different opinions and so many different interpretations of this passage uh, have arisen and why people have debated over the precise meaning of these verses. And while I'm going to attempt to answer some of those questions, though certainly not exhaustively, I, I, I want to I warn you before we start taking this thing apart. I think we can be tempted with two equal but opposite dangers as we come to a passage like this. So on the one hand, you might say to yourself, this passage seems really complex and confusing, and therefore it can't be relevant to how I live my life. And so you sort of just mentally check out, you pass over it, maybe you go to some passage that's more familiar, and you're going to miss out on tremendous blessing. There is tremendous blessing and encouragement and comfort uh, if you will give yourselves to understanding the meaning of this text Uh, You know, of course, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for instruction and correction. Uh, But there's another danger. Maybe you're the kind of person that's super pumped to get to a passage like this, right? You see in this passage a puzzle to be solved, a, a riddle to be unraveled. But be careful. We need to be careful this morning that in our quest to sort of unravel this mystery, and unfold this puzzle, we don't miss the larger point altogether, the point that Mark is trying to make. And so so I'd like to try to avoid both of those dangers by asking the question that I think hangs over this entire passage. I think there's a question that hangs over this entire passage, and that question is this. Why does Mark, the, the writer, the author of this gospel, why does Mark include this discourse? Why does he include the Olivet Discourse in his gospel? Right? You know, of course, that Jesus did and taught a whole lot of things. So much so that, you know, at the end of John's gospel, remember what John says at the end of his gospel? If we were to record everything that Jesus did and said, it would fill so many books that, they could, that the whole world couldn't contain them. So why does Mark and, and Matthew and Luke as well, why do they include this discourse in their gospel? 
Well, as you know, if you've been around for a little bit, you know that we've been going through this study in, in Mark's gospel, and Mark has carefully compiled and arranged his account of Jesus' life to show us at every point who he really is and what it means to follow him. And, and this passage, of course, is no exception. So the question for us this morning is, what does, what does Mark want us to see about Jesus? As he records for us this discourse, what does he want us to see about Jesus? And I think this is the answer. I think this is the answer. As Jesus draws closer to the end of his earthly life, Mark wants us to see Jesus as the Savior who is lovingly committed to preserving and keeping his people amidst every danger. I'll say it again. Mark wants us to see Jesus as the Savior who is lovingly committed to preserving and keeping his people amidst every danger. That's what I think he wants us to see about Jesus this morning. Right? You know already as we've been going that Jesus is in the last week of his life. And with every hour that passes, he is getting nearer and nearer to the moment where he is going to bear the awful burden and weight and curse of our sin. Every hour that passes, he gets closer and closer to his own death, to his own crucifixion. But as he gets closer, what's amazing is his mind is not on himself. His mind is on his disciples and preparing them for his departure. You see, he is relentlessly committed to their well-being as their good shepherd. And and by the way, I'm, I'm using that language of Jesus as a shepherd because of how he begins his discourse. Do you see the very first words he uses? See that no one leads you astray? That's shepherd language, isn't it? You think of that passage, all we like sheep have gone astray. Right, so what's being said? In other words, he's saying at the very outset of, of his address, listen to my voice, the voice of your good shepherd, and you will be safe forever. And brothers and sisters, as we hear Jesus speaking these words as a faithful shepherd to his disciples, so we hear him speaking these words as a faithful shepherd uh, to us. And I think in this passage, as Jesus forecasts the events that are going to unfold, we hear him saying three things, basically. I think we hear him essentially saying three things to us. Here they are. I think we hear him saying, destruction is coming, but I'm in control. We hear him saying, you will suffer, but I will be with you. And we hear him saying, many will perish but I will preserve my people. We hear him saying three things. So let's, let's take each of those three things. The first Jesus says to us, destruction is coming, but I am in control. When, when was the last time you felt like your world was falling apart? Just something happened that just totally rocked you. Uh, uncertainty disappointment, fear, anxiety. Do you, know, do you know that feeling I'm talking about? What we find here in this passage is Jesus preparing the disciples to have their world absolutely rocked in, in a way, really, that we can't imagine. Jesus has already told them multiple times that he's, he's going to his own death, 
But now he adds that the place that is at the very epicenter of their identity, of their national, their social, their religious identity, Jerusalem and the temple is going to be completely destroyed. Everything they have known as a people is about to be decimated. In the first three verses, we find Jesus walking home from the temple with his disciples and they come to the Mount of Olives and uh, the, the disciples stop to take in the view. And it would have been an absolutely breathtaking view, uh, view, by the way. If you're standing atop the Mount of Olives, you can look across the the Kidron Valley, and there you can see the entirety of Jerusalem with the temple at the center. And and can you imagine what it would have been like to to stand there and sort of see the sun going down over the city and the rays of sunshine glistening off all the gold that decorated the temple? And so they, they look across and exclaim, Look what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings! And there's no doubt it would have been an impressive sight to behold. Uh, Josephus, you ever heard of Josephus? He's a Roman historian. He actually says that the the, uh, Jewish temple uh, exceeded every ancient temple in size and grandeur. Do you know some of the stones that were used to build the foundation? Josephus records that some of those stones were 60 feet in length, weighing in at a million pounds each. It's a massive structure. It's a 35 acre complex, a mile all the way around. It was more than twice the size of Solomon's original temple. And because of Herod's ostentatious and ornate taste, it had been under construction, constantly being added onto for 50 years. Not quite as long as the construction that's been going on on 295 and 42, but it was close. (laughs) But you need to understand that this temple was at the very center of their identity as Jews, in, in more ways than we can grasp. One commentator said it would have been like um, the, 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 the meaning that Washington, D.C. or the White House or the Capitol building has to us. But, you know, I don't even think that really captures it. Because, again, for them, Jerusalem was not just a city. It was the city of God. It was Mount Zion. It was, it was key to their national identity, to their religious identity, to their social identity. And the temple, of course, was the place where God dwelled in the Holy of Holies, the place where sacrifices were made every year to atone for sin, the place where all the feasts were celebrated. This place was the central to who they were. And as they look out at the city from the Mount of Olives and wonder, Jesus' response, you know, look at these wonderful buildings and how great they are. And Jesus' response is not one of recognition and admiration, is it? How does Jesus respond? He says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. A statement like that must have just utterly shocked the disciples. How could Jesus suggest something like that? Well, you know that over the past weeks we've, we've seen Jesus riding into Jerusalem and condemning the temple and the temple system, right? He goes into the temple and says, it's a den of robbers. The temple had failed to fulfill its role as a house of prayer for the nations. You also remember that we've been seeing these conflict episodes with the religious leaders who are Uh, intensely integrated into the temple system and all those conflict episodes happening within the temple. And as these religious leaders come to Jesus, they're not coming to confess their sincere faith in him as the Messiah. They're coming to challenge his authority. So the perversion of the temple and all of the religious leaders that were a part of it was, was clear. 
the, 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 the temple had failed. And Israel had failed to be all that God had called them to be. And so as Jesus leaves the temple, he's not merely changing location. He's declaring his rejection and his condemnation and his judgment against the temple. And so as he looks out on the city with his disciples there on the top of Mount, the, the Mount of Olives, he announces that judgment, the complete destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. It's a judgment and a destruction that will feel to the disciples like nothing less than the end of the world. It will be the complete eradication of their way of life. Now, once the disciples gather themselves after hearing Jesus' words, Peter, James, John, and Andrew pull him aside and ask him when these things will happen and what the sign will be that all these things are about to to be accomplished. And Jesus' response again is, is loving guidance meant to prepare them for the days ahead. That's what we see here. He, he sits down with them the way a father might sit down with his child before their first day of, of middle school or something and tells them what to expect. The many will try to lead you astray. False messiahs will come. Nations will rise against nations, kings against kings. You'll hear uh, of, of rumors of, of wars and earthquakes and famines. But these are but the beginning of birth pains. What is that? The beginning of birth pains. You know, one of the, the biggest debates that surrounds this passage is the question of whether or not Jesus is talking about uh, events that unfold in the first century AD or, or about future events that have not happened yet that correspond to his second coming. And on the one hand, we have to say that Jesus is most immediately referring to events uh, that will take place in the first century, namely the actual destruction of Jerusalem and the, and the temple at the hands of the Romans, who will come and lay siege to the city in AD 70. Of course, the whole context of this passage is Jesus' announcement of judgment against Jerusalem. Furthermore, his warnings later on to, to flee the mountains flee to the mountains and pray that it would not happen in winter uh, don't make sense unless what's being referred to here are uh, immediate events that will happen in the first century. But you can see why some people want to push Jesus' words into the future, can't you? Right, Because the things he's preparing his disciples for seem to be common to the entirety of human experience. Wars, earthquakes, famines, false teachers. So which is it? Is Jesus talking about events that unfold in the first century? Is he talking about future events? Well, I think the answer is yes. That's helpful. Uh, Jesus is actually speaking here as as a prophet. And not as just any prophet, as the prophet. Right? He's predicting with divine authority future events that are going to take place. But something that's helpful to understand about prophecy is that there's rarely, if ever, a, a singular fulfillment in view. In other words, when, when you go back and begin examining prophecies in the Old Testament, you will most often find an immediate fulfillment and then a more distant future fulfillment. So let me give you an easy example. You, you know this messianic prophecy, Isaiah seven fourteen: Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, that's, a, that's actually a promise that God gives to give King Ahaz a sign 
that Judah would not be defeated by the northern kingdoms. And sure enough, if you were to go into Isaiah 8, you would see that that prophecy is fulfilled. A prophetess bears a son as a sign to Ahaz that, the, that, that, that Judah would not be defeated by the northern kingdoms. But of course, you know that there is a greater and, 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 and fuller future fulfillment in view, which is Jesus' own conception by his mother Mary. So what's the point? The point is, I, I think that's what we have here. That's the same thing that we have here. There is an immediate fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy in the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. But there is th- th- that, that prophecy itself, Jerusalem and, and the destruction of the temple, is also a forecast, a foreshadowing of a greater future destruction that is coming. A greater, final, and more complete destruction of all evil uh, that is coming. And so we, we too experience these beginning birth pains. Not, not as we await the destruction of a city, but as we await God's final d- judgment and the destruction of all evil. Right? In both an immediate sense and a distant future sense, these beginning birth pains are the necessary precursors to the destruction that is coming. But, but listen, hear Jesus' point. He says, when you see all those things happening, don't be alarmed. It's verse 7. When Jesus says they are the beginning of birth pains, what he's saying is that these things are, to, are, are sufficient to tell you that destruction is coming, but not to, sufficient to tell you precisely when. You understand what I'm saying? That these things are happening are sufficient to tell you that destruction will indeed come but not precisely when it will come. Uh, moms, you hear that, that little language, the beginning of birth pains? All of these things, the wars and the, the kings rising against kings and nations against nations and false messiahs, they are the Braxton Hicks of labor. They are, they are the, the signs that you are indeed pregnant and labor will indeed come but they are not sufficient to tell you when exactly that labor will come. These are the beginning of birth pains. And so when you see and hear about these things, it's it's a reminder that, listen, it's a reminder that history is linear. You know what I mean by that? It's, It's moving in a line. It's moving towards God's appointed end. The world around us bears witness that a final destruction, a final judgment and the destruction of all evil is coming. With with every war, with every earthquake, with every famine, every false teacher, we are reminded that the world is not as it should be, but one day God will come and set everything right. Now, two things I want you to take from this. Here's the first thing. You ready? I know that's a lot. I just keep, no, it's, it's, a, it's a complex passage. I'm throwing a lot at you. Two things I want you to take from this here. The first thing is this. You would be a fool to believe that things will forever continue on as they have always gone on. All the disciples knew and all they could imagine was a world that centered around Jerusalem and the temple, but Jesus says a day is coming when it will be destroyed and it will change forever. And it's hard for us to imagine something other than this world as we have experienced it our entire lives. But Jesus tells us a day is coming when everything will change. In fact, Peter Peter warns us against a, a kind of attitude that questions this reality, saying that scoffers will come asking, 
Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing on as they were from the beginning of creation. But Peter reminds us that by the word of God, the world was destroyed in the days of Noah. And by that same word, it's 2 Peter 3, 7, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So the first thing is, be certain that day is coming. Right? We go to bed and wake up. We go to bed and we wake up. But what I'm telling you is, do, do not foolishly think that everything will always continue on as it now goes. A day is coming. And the world bears witness to it. But here's the second thing. And more than that, I want you to hear what Jesus says amidst all the chaos of those beginning birth pains. You see, when we hear of those things, a, a fear, an anxiety, a panic can rise up in us. But Jesus says, don't be alarmed. All of these things must take place. Do you hear what he's saying? In other words, he's saying, don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed. I'm in control of all of this. I'm in control of all of this. You know, I, I wondered why Mark chose to include Jesus' teaching on his identity from Psalm 110. You remember last week where he, he quotes Psalm 10 and Jesus talks about himself as the, the, the king who is presented in Psalm 110? And I wondered why Mark chose it. And I think at least part of the reason is because Psalm 110 points the picture, uh, uh, paints a picture of the risen and ascended Messiah reigning and ruling and accomplishing infallibly all his purposes even in the midst of his enemies, until all of them are subdued and made his footstool. In other words, he's the king who is in complete control over all human history and is perfectly bringing about his redemptive purposes. So destruction is coming, Jesus says. It's not always going to be the same. Destruction is coming, but I am in control. I'm in control of all of it. I am infallibly accomplishing all of my purpose. Don't be alarmed. All of these things must take place. Brothers and sisters, maybe this week, maybe today, maybe these past months, it has felt like your world is falling apart. But what an anchor for the soul to know that nothing is outside of the control of God and everything that happens, happens according to His will and His purpose. Right? Isn't that one of the things that produces such anxiety and fear in us? You wonder who is steering the ship because you know it's not you. But Jesus tells the disciples ahead of time what to expect so that when they see and hear and experience all this chaos, right? When they see and experience the kings rising against kings and the, and the rumors of wars and, and the earthquakes and the famines, they won't be distraught. They won't be anxious. But actually their, 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 their faith will be strengthened because Jesus told them ahead of time these things would happen. And he's told you ahead of time what, what will happen too, hasn't he? It's, it's, it's kind of strange to think about it, but you know the future, don't you? You don't know all the precise events that will unfold before we get to that final future, but God has in Christ told us the future. What comfort and what courage and what confidence we receive when we, rem when we remember that no matter what happens in this life, a day is coming when God will destroy all evil and when he will bring about the new heavens and the new earth and a world of perfect joy and love and blessing in his presence forever. Listen, when that becomes real to you, when that hope, not, not a pipe dream, not a maybe, when that certain hope becomes real to you, 
nothing can shake you. Absolutely nothing can shake you because you know, even despite all the chaos and all the craziness that this world and all the suffering and heartache can throw at you, you know the end. You know what's coming. He told you ahead of time. And so your faith is strengthened. A destruction is coming, says Jesus, but I am in control of everything. That's the first thing he says to us. The second thing he says is, you will suffer, but I will be with you. As Jesus goes on to prepare his disciples for the coming destruction and all that will accompany it, he tells them to expect uh, suffering. In verses 9 through 13, you see there in the passage, he tells them, you will be handed over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues. You'll be tried before kings and governors, betrayed by family, hated by all men for my sake. In other words, he says, while you're awaiting for this destruction, while you're awaiting for the destruction of Jerusalem and and the temple, you're going to suffer. You're going to experience hardship and heartache. And this is the life to which you have been called. And you, you know what's so amazing is how incredibly accurate Jesus prophecy and prediction is. If you're in one of our life groups, we've been working through the book of Acts. And the book of Acts, what we have seen over the past year is, the, is exactly what Jesus said would happen in the life of the early church. In just the first few chapters, we find various apostles arrested on multiple occasions and brought before religious councils to testify. We find Stephen martyred. We find Saul persecuting the church and dragging both men and women off to prison. We find the disciples encountering exactly what Jesus said they would. Suffering, persecution, loss, and heartache, all for the sake of his name. But just as in that last point, this this kind of language seems to stretch beyond the first century, doesn't it? Indeed, Jesus makes a point of telling anyone that would follow him in any generation that their lot would be the same as all his disciples throughout the ages. You remember just a a couple chapters ago in, in, in Mark, we read these words. Jesus says these words. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. You, You see, Jesus calls everyone who follows him to count the cost. And to take up your cross. Uh, To become a Christian. Listen, to become a Christian in one sense is to court worldly suffering. I've shared this quote before, but it's worth repeating. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He writes this. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The call to follow Christ is a call to forsake the world and embrace in so many ways a life of self-denial and suffering. You see, Jesus comes to the disciples and he comes to us and he says, my sheep, my children, my friends, you will suffer. Again, I, I, I picture a parent sort of sitting down with their child on the night before they're going to endure the, the harrowing ordeal that is middle school and telling them, listen, Jimmy, it's going to be rough. I don't know what your middle school experience was like, but it's going to be rough. You're going to see things. You're going to hear things. There are going to be things that, that are 
mean, disgusting. Some of those things may even be aimed at you. And so Jesus sits the disciples down and sits us down and tells us like it is. He says, in the world you will suffer, you will have trial, you will have tribulation. But that's not all Jesus says to them, is it? He says you will suffer, but he, he says to them, as you forsake the fleeting pleasures of this world and as the world turns its back on you in hatred because of your identification with me, you will get something infinitely greater. You will get me. Whoever loses his life for Christ's sake will find it. You see, he says to his disciples and to us, you are going to suffer, but I will be with you. I will be with you. Right? You will have me and I will have you. Right? We just sang, Jesus is mine. There is no amount of worldly pleasure or happiness that can compare with this promise that we will have Christ and he will be with us through everything. Now, where do I see this? Look, look at verse 11. Verse 11, we, we, we read this. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. You see what Jesus is saying there? How, how can they be sure that what they say will be the very words of the Holy Spirit? Right? Is he saying that in their hour of suffering, they're going to be like possessed by the Holy Spirit, become like a little Holy Spirit avatar or something? No, he, he's saying, my spirit is going to reside in you. I'm going to be with you in every moment of heartache and suffering and grief. You're going to suffer in this life for my name's sake, but I will be with you. Now listen, how can he say that? How can Jesus say that? He's on his way to die. He's preparing his disciples for his departure. But brothers and sisters, don't you see that it is precisely for this reason that he goes to the cross? It's precisely for this reason that he goes to the cross. Our sin separates us from the presence of God. But Jesus, in this last week of his life, is preparing to bear the fullness of that separation for us. Before his disciples are ever brought before a religious council, Jesus himself is brought before the Sanhedrin like a lamb led to the slaughter, where he's charged with blasphemy. He makes no answer. He stands alone. And no one comes to his defense. He's mocked. He's spat upon. He's beaten. And still he is left alone. He, he's hung upon a cross where he is utterly forsaken. And on the cross he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But do you know what he hears in return? Nothing. Silence. There's no reply. Why? Why is Jesus left so utterly alone in his suffering? So that he might reconcile you to God. So that he might end the separation. So that he might pour out his spirit into your very heart and be with you forever no matter what happens. Don't you, don't you see? Don't you see? He was abandoned so that you never would be. Are you suffering this morning? And maybe even a little bit more along the lines of this text. 
Are you suffering this morning because of your identification with Jesus? Take courage to know that he is always with you by his spirit, that he is made to dwell in you. Not only has he come into the world and suffered so that he can sympathize with you in all of your sufferings, but he has taken upon himself the ultimate suffering so that he could comfort you with his presence, so that he could be with you in all of it. You know, Christianity, do you know this? Christianity is the only religion. That's the only religion that boasts of a God who comes into the world to suffer. It's the only one. It's the only one where, where God comes into the world to suffer, suffer so that he can sympathize with his people and so that he can be with them forever. Right? Jesus says all these things must take place. It's according to the wise counsel of his will that all of these sufferings and all of these birth pains take place. So the first thing he says to us is take heart. Take heart. Don't be alarmed. I am in control. But the next thing he says to us is I'm going to be with you in all of it. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm going to be with you in all of it. What a comfort it is to know our Savior with us. He says, in all your sufferings, I am there. I am with you through it all. And I am working in it and through it to produce a weight of glory beyond comparison. And brothers and sisters, when you see that, when you see Christ taking the ultimate suffering for your sin in your place and the abandonment of God in your place so that you can know the joy of his presence forever, no matter what you are going through in this life, your heart begins to overflow with words like we sang just a few moments ago. What, what have I to fear? What have I to dread leaning on the everlasting arms? I have blessed peace with my Lord so near leaning on the everlasting arms. Or these words, in days of fragile peace, Jesus is mine. Through tearful nights of grief, Jesus is mine. His voice commands a storm. His presence stills my soul. He will sustain my hope. Jesus is mine. When all else fails, when everything else around you fails, he still remains. He's with you. Jesus is mine. The destruction is coming, Jesus says, but I'm in control. You will suffer, Jesus says, but I am with you. And lastly, he says, many will perish, but I will preserve my people. Many will perish, but I will preserve my people. Look at verse 14 through 23. Saved the, the, <laughs> the craziest, most confusing stuff for the end. All right, there's lots of perplexing statements in these verses. Uh, but when you remember the, the primary context of this passage, it begins to become much clearer. Remember, Jesus is preparing the disciples for the complete destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And while Jesus has told them not to be alarmed by all the chaos they are seeing and to be prepared for the suffering that they must endure at the hands of religious and political leaders, he now tells them that there is a sign. There is a sign that when they see it, that's their signal to get out of the city. But what is that sign? You see it there. It is the abomination of desolation. That's, it's time for a drink of water. The abomination of desolation. What is that? 
Uh, Some have argued Jesus is referring to an attempt by a Roman emperor to erect a statue of himself in AD 39. Some have argued it refers to the arrival of the Roman troops uh, under Titus or his actual entry into the sanctuary or maybe even the destruction of the temple itself. Others take Jesus' words in a strictly future sense and see this as a veiled pointer to the coming of the Antichrist. Of all the views, I I think that's the one that we can pretty easily dismiss. Uh, right away, because again, the immediate context of this passage is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So whatever the sign is, if you're tracking with me, whatever the sign is, Jesus says, when you see this sign, that's your cue, get out of the city. Now you see Jesus' instruction uh, in verse 14 there. He says, uh, when they see the sign, they are supposed to flee to the mountains. In my opinion, I'm not going to go real deeply into this, in my opinion, the best argument for the identity of the abomination of desolation is when the zealot party, who actually provokes the Roman incursion and the Roman siege of Jerusalem, installs Fanny as the high priest, one of their sort of puppet uh, figures, uh, as they appoint him as the high priest in AD 67. Uh, If you're interested, I can tell you after the service more why I think that's the case. Uh, But for our purposes this morning, the point is, listen, the point is, whatever the sign is, The disciples got it. The disciples knew what it was. They saw the sign and they obeyed Jesus because when they saw the sign, they booked. They left. They got out of the city and thus were preserved. Um, And that's the main point, isn't it? Why is Jesus telling them about this? Why is Jesus telling them about this sign? Because, listen, because he is relentlessly committed to preserving his people so that the early church will survive. He's relentlessly committed to preserving his people. Jesus tells them what to do before God's judgment falls on Jerusalem in the form of the Roman invasion. And and, and really the rest of this passage is Jesus telling them how bad the actual siege of Jerusalem is going to be so that the disciples don't mess around. So that when they see the sign, they actually get out. They say, okay, it's happening. It's time for us to go. In verse 15 to 16, he says, Uh, Don't go down from the housetop or or enter your house to take anything out. Don't come back in from the field to gather your things. Now, I I don't think Jesus is speaking literally here. Uh, I I think he's he's speaking hyperbolically. That is, he's exaggerating to make a point. Um, If if you were to go back into Exodus 11, when when, um, God announces the final Pharaoh, or the final... uh, plague uh, on Pharaoh. He uses very similar language. There's going to be crying and wailing in, in Egypt like there never has been and never will be again. It's, he's, he, what he's trying to do is communicate how serious, how devastating, how painful, how awful this event is actually going to be. So I think what we see here is, is, is exaggerated language to make sure they know uh, they need to not dilly-dally. Don't goof around. Get out of the silly. Uh, get out of the city. Uh, get out of the silly. That's right. uh, that exclamation, alas, for women who are pregnant and the instruction to pray that it does not happen in winter, that, that gives further credence the idea that what's in view here is uh, the impending siege of the Roman army. It will be an additional hardship on the sisters who are pregnant to leave their homes and to get out of the city. And it will be worse for everyone if it happens in winter. And if you're interested, by the way, listen, by the way, the Christians take Jesus' instruction and they do pray. And you know what? Do you know when the siege happens? It happens in the spring. 
doesn't happen in the winter. It happens in the spring. It happens right around the time of the Passover. The history tells us uh, that the main siege of Jerusalem happened right, right before the Passover, actually. So as we go on, we, we continue to find Jesus speaking more hyperbolically again, right? Some take verse 19 and the severity of the language to be a clear indicator that Jesus is talking about future eschatological events. And you can see why, right? There will be such a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And, and I point you again back to that language that we find in Exodus. But it seems more likely, given the context, that Jesus is, is using this severe language as, as a way to express how unbelievably brutal the siege of Jerusalem is going to be so that the disciples don't mess around, so that they are compelled to leave as soon as they see this sign. And again, by the way, history tells us that the Roman siege of Jerusalem was one of the most cruel and bloody ordeals in human history. If you go back and read Josephus' account of the siege of Jerusalem, it is horrifying. Uh, Famine and starvation is everywhere. Bodies piled up. Uh, In one point, he says, passion ruled. Passion ruled. There was no... There was no consideration for order. The Roman centurions just slaughtered everyone they saw. Men, women, children, the elderly, without regard for anything. It was a, it was a bloodbath. But here's the point. In all of that destruction and chaos, God has both acted in time, both through the person of his, uh, the, the, the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to warn the church and thus preserve them, right? You see in verse 23, he says, I have told you all these things beforehand. Why? Why has he told them all these things beforehand? So that they might be spared. So that they would know ahead of time and that they could get out and they would be rescued. But we also read in verse 20 that that God sovereignly cut short the days of the siege of Jerusalem so as to preserve his elect people. So here's the biggest and most important point that Mark is showing us about Jesus. He is a savior who is always working to keep and preserve his people. He is a savior who is always working to keep and preserve his people. The whole point of this passage is that Jesus is warning the disciples about the coming destruction so that they can flee and be saved. And even the ones that aren't able to get out in time, God cuts short the days so that they might be preserved. Now listen, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying, right? That's, that's not a promise that God will warn you and protect you from every physical danger in your life. Though he does often protect us according to the wise purposes of his will. But you will get in car accidents. You will be diagnosed with sicknesses. You will experience loss and heartache. But don't you see what Mark is showing us about Jesus? Remember, that's how I started this. What is Mark trying to show us about Jesus? And here's what he's trying to show us about Jesus. He does not lose any of his sheep. He does not lose any of his sheep. They cannot be snatched out of his hand. He is always working to preserve and keep his people. He is the Lord of Psalm 121 who will keep you from all evil, who keeps your life. You're going out and you're coming from this time forth and forevermore. He is the Lord who will complete the good work that he has begun in you. He is the Lord who drew you to himself and will raise you up on the last day. He is the Lord who says, nothing can separate you from my love. The cross is the guarantee that there is no length he won't go to make sure that you are safe in him. And so we can sing, those he saves are his delight. 
Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. Don't you see what Jesus is, is, is saying? Don't you see what Mark is trying to show us about Jesus? He says destruction will come, and brothers and sisters, it will come. But he says, I'm in control of all of it. He says, brothers and sisters, you will suffer in this life. You will have trial and you will have tribulation, but I will be with you through all of it. I've taken, I've bore, I, I have borne the, the, the greatest of all suffering so that I can be with you through all of it and deliver you safe to glory. And he says, the many will perish, but I will infallibly and perfectly preserve my people. None of them will be lost. Brothers, take courage. Sisters, take courage, take heart, be comforted. Your Savior, Jesus Christ, will keep and preserve you. Let's, let's pray. Oh, Lord, we, we thank you for this time, and I pray that you would bless these words, uh, that they would, uh, as I prayed at the beginning, nourish and strengthen these saints. Remind us of your goodness. Allow these hearts to dwell in us richly, uh, that we might move out into the world in confidence and courage and comfort, knowing that despite all the things that, that are happening, all the uncertainties, all the things that would produce fear and anxiety and worry in us, you are in control. You promise never to leave nor forsake us. And you promise to preserve us safe to the end till you deliver us to the shores of eternity where we will be with you forever. Comfort us, remind us with these truths. Help us to remind one another of these truths. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.